0: Thank you for getting back so promptly. So I'm Vicky Iglikowski-Broad. I work at the National Archives as a diverse histories record specialist. So I get to play around with all the fun, interesting, diverse histories in our collections here. I am really delighted to be chairing this session today uh, on what makes for effective co-production, which I think is at the heart of everything we've been discussing so far, uh, and really quite fundamental. This session looks at the practice of co-production based on the experience of archivists and historians. It considers what does and doesn't work um, and how to get the most from collaborative research partnerships. Uh, so I'm actually working on a fellowship with the Wellcome Collection um, that's looking at co-collaborative practice as well. So I'm really fascinated to hear how this all goes today. We're going to be looking at how do we run a successful co-production project and. When and why does co-production go wrong? And we've talked about some of the risks and challenges involved in co-production. And that is what brings most benefits. But it does mean things can go wrong. And how does the institution, I guess, deal with that? So we have three papers by four speakers in this panel. We've got Dr Errol Francis, Rosa Schillig, Mike Abaster and Karen Barker. Um, So, first up, it is wonderful to be able to uh, invite Errol Francis here. He was appointed CEO of Culture And in 2016, and he has substantial experience with community engagement, particularly, I believe, around mental health and the arts with minority groups. Um, So, this should be a really valuable contribution to today. And the presentation is entitled Animating Archives and Engaging Underrepresented Audiences. Uh, So, if we can welcome Errol up. Thank you.
1: Thanks for that. Thanks for inviting me to to speak today. Um, I didn't think that the project I'm going to talk about is co-production. I did tell the organisers this, and they said, come anyway. (laughs) Um, I think it's it's collaborative. Uh, I've only got ten minutes. It was quite a complex project to... To, to deliver, uh, but I hope I'll give you a flavour and perhaps we can bring out some more of the points in the um, discussion. But just to put it into context, I'll tell you a bit about um, Culture Anne's mission, um, the new museum school which kind of fitted into this project, and um, this is to highlight, the Memory Archives, which took place uh, last year, the 22nd of June on Windrush Day. So just to say a bit about Culture Anne, we've been going for over 30 years, We've always been about opening up the arts and heritage sectors to more diverse talent and to expand audiences. And our works uh, cover public programming, workforce, education and training. Just to say why we have the, museu- the new museum school is the data about the workforce. I won't drill down, we haven't got time to, to look into it, but there's been a lot of discussion about this recently from uh, the chairman of the uh, Arts Council, Nicholas Sorota, on the workforce, but there's also issues about access to heritage by minority groups and uh, diverse communities, and this project responds to that situation. These are our wonderful trainees, a class of uh, last year, our um, diverse trainees who do reflect Um, the the population of London, which I'm afraid the arts and heritage sector does not do at the moment, and we're really trying to do that. We we have one-year traineeships at leading museums, we focus on digital and conservation, we pay our (coughs) trainees a London living wage, and we deliver a diploma in cultural heritage as part of the placement. This this particular project I'm going to tell you about is based on a collaborative project we did with, with the University of West London, about using multi-sensory approaches to working with people with dementia, focusing on using visual stimuli and wi- you know, that, that delivers improvements in attention, mood, and so on. Music, which stimulates memory, um, taste, how this can alleviate social isolation, provides an opportunity for nutrition, uh, this is often d- uh, depleted in people with d- dementia. Smell, very evocative, uh, which can be lost and it also stimulates autobiographical mood, memory and mood. And the, the, the domesticate, spa- the kind of spatial environment has a, a big influence on uh, people's behaviour. So that was the Imagination Cafe. These are all the partners we work with, so we are collaborative. Various museums all around London that we, that we have traineeships based, based in, including the London Metropolitan Archives, which is where this uh, project took place, um, and it's, it's a collaborative project aimed at e- uh, engaging members of the so-called Windrush generation. This is an epitaph that has kind of got stuck, actually, but actually not everybody came on that boat, actually. Some people came by aeroplane. There's, there is an archival collection, and this, this particular generation is ageing, and um, many are living with dementia. We have a culture and archive at the LMA, and we're also working with Unlocking Our Sound Heritage, which is a database of music and sound related to London and its culture and history. So the event was also about commemorating Windrush Day, which we had to put on there because we were being funded by the Ministry of uh, Housing, Communities and Local Government, so we had to use the branding. But it's not strictly about Windrush as such, it's more about diversity of London and engaging elders living with dementia with an archival um, collection and it's also aimed at, going back to the figures about audiences, providing more diverse access to... The City of London is this really strange space, um, you know, uh, where it it is not diverse, the arts audiences, you know, but there is this amazing, strong connection, cultural connection with the City of London. How would Lloyd's of London be there if it hadn't been, you know, the slave trade and so on? So there is this connection, um, and we're trying to re-establish that. We wanted to cu- curate, based on the evidence, a multi-sensory programme to stimulate reminiscence. That was the main objective. So this was the Imagination Caveat, the test project that we did in London, Mostyn and Edinburgh, um, using uh, imaginative, uh, sorry, artistic and creative approaches, working with people with dementia. We didn't get a very diverse audience, and this is what this project aimed to deal with. So this was the branding. Um, this was another archive that's in the LMA called the Huntley Archives. These two people on the, on, on the left, Erica and uh, Jessica Huntley, started the first black publishing house in the UK, and all the records are in the LMA, and we actually worked with that collection as well in our um, memory archives programme. So, it was a day to engage the, um, Windrush elders living with dementia with the LMA at the Huntley Archives, Culture and Collections, we were aiming to animate the archives with a multi-century display and performance trying to make the archives a safe welcoming and comfortable space i mean the lma is it's in this kind of warehouse uh, it was a converted industrial building uh, you wouldn't really go there unless you were going to produce documents so this was a challenge to us going back to the spatial environment um, to make this space inviting for an audience who won't go who didn't want to or may not be able to Peru's archival documents but they were very interested in what these documents and various uh, objects what they had to say in terms of their experience and their memories so we wanted to bring all this alive and making it a human place this is a quote by the way a really powerful qu- quote from the people from the Mazai people from Kenya who were in discussion with the Pitt Rivers Museum about items in the collection and I was really moved when I heard them say, at Oxford, that the museum should be a place for humanity, not just objects. I just thought it was a really, really powerful statement about the relationship between objects and heritage and cultural history. So the way we um, did this, this is um, in a room in the LMA called the the, the Huntley Room. And we commissioned an artist, uh, Michael McMillan, to recreate the West Indian living room from the 1960s. This is an artwork that he's been touring at various museums, and we asked him to reinstall it at the um, LMA. So you see it there as a kind of empty art installation, but it was something that people can sit in, inhabit, and enjoy. So this is the artist in the background, Michael in there. These are all the guests, people from care homes and so on. And he's he's using a record collection talking about music from the 1950s and 60s. He's playing the music on period devices, and there was just this wonderful conversation that developed with the um, audience about the music from that period and their memories of of, of that um, period. And there were also some of the tapes that we played from Unlocking Our Sound Heritage as well during that session, and it was really a wonderful Animated session. There was children there as well as elderly people. Then people knitting, and it really brought this space alive. And it just—it wasn't recognisable as the LMA building normally is. This this room was the um, uh, called the archive study area. We cleared all the tables and made it into a display of um, ar- objects. We had facsimile objects from the collection, and then we had um, live spoken word performance by a very uh, distinguished performer called Cassandra uh, Agard. Uh, this is Keith Waite. He was um, uh, performing music from the Culture and Archive. Uh, we have tapes, we have uh, music notation. And um, he did a participati- participative workshop. And he plays the flute and he was joined by bu- c- percussion. And this was happening in the Archive study area. Th- so this was the welcoming of the guests. So we had these objects from the, the Boots archives, which people recognised uh, from the, the, the period. Some of them were very evocative smells, like the soap there. Um, but we also had fruit, very uh, some of them quite difficult to get hold of. I mean, um, these particular ones called uh, guinep, I think this is Caribbean uh, fruit, but it stimulated conversation and people remembered um, their time in the Caribbean. So this is what we meant by being multi-sensory. Food, this was responding to the taste. Um, we had uh, these recipes, were these are recipes of food uh, that people don't really um, cook, actually, very very, um, very often now. Um, um, but the, the food itself, the recipes themselves, the, um, were very evocative flavours, and um, the right at the top, it's out of focus there. Um, that is a, a dish called Dokuno. It's a West, it, origins, it originates in West Africa and it has very exotic materi- uh, ingredients. You have to cook the polenta in um, banana skin, um, uh, uh, sorry, banana leaves, and um, this was served. So this was something very evocative, but also relating to documentation about these recipes which um, are, are becoming lost. This is again about the, um, uh, the, f- the fruit. That substance there, limacol, has this extraordinary smell and people really appreciated that and, um, and spoke about at their memories. As I said, it was, even though it was aimed at older people, people brought their grandchildren along and so in terms of archival recordings that we had on cassette tapes played on the period devices. So, we are going to repeat it again just to say also that in relation to the museum, New Museum School, it was co-curated by our alumni from the New Museum School, so that was quite an important ingredient in it. It was um, showing how, if you diversify the workforce, that you can deliver I- events like that that have cultural authenticity. We're uh, continuing a collaboration with the LMA and the British Library, and we are hoping to have a similar programme this year. We're cu- currently trying to finalise that. And it, we hope that this year it's going to be at the Guildhall Art Gallery. Um, we're looking at the jukebox as an archive of music and the archival material this time will be from the BFI uh, and the Black Cultural Archives. We hope that we're going to be collaborating with them. We've heard from Aisha recently. And then live Spoken word performances again. We had very good feedback and people told us what they liked, what they didn't like. One of the things they didn't like was the actual... LMA building, so we really want to work with the LMA again, but we've got to use a different building because <coughs> we didn't get good feedback about accessibility. We're going to do the multi-sensory approach again with food, smells and objects from various archives. I hope that's interesting and we can bring up more questions. Thank you.
0: Wow, that was wonderful. Thank you, Errol. Uh, Lots of food for thought there. So next up, we have Rosa Schilling, uh, who is uh, co-director of On the Record. Uh, She's managed uh, numerous oral history and community heritage projects, um, which has ended up in exhibitions um, and podcasts. But she's going to be talking, I believe, about On the Record and the kind of co-curative participatory elements to that. So over to Rosa.
2: Thank you. So I'm Rosa Schling and um, On The Record Community Interest Company. We are an oral history organisation. We started in 2012 and it's myself and another oral historian, Laura Mitchison, that really comprise the organisation. (laughs) Um, So we co-produce On The Record. And um, it's really interesting to be asked to speak here today because co-production is really at the heart of what we do and how we try to work. Thinking about what I was going to say today, I thought back to how we started eight years ago and um, one of the first things we did was go to speak to Stefan Dickers, who's at the back who we'll hear from later, at the Bishopsgate Institute because we had an idea to run a project about Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park and we thought Bishopsgate Institute would be the perfect home for that archive. and. Stefan and Bishopsgate Street were the first organisation we reached out to as a young, fledgling organisation to work with and they were so encouraging that they really encouraged us and I think I really have always been inspired by that approach of trying to work with people's ideas and be open to other people as much as possible and to encourage people on the way up I think is something um, we can all learn from as much as possible. So. We've been running all history and community archive projects since then, starting with recording the history of Speakers' Corner, and going on to record the history of a um, amazing community organisation called Centreprise, which was in Hackney for, for since um, it was it was in Hackney from the early 70s until um, it closed in around 2012. Um, well, around the time we were starting really our own organisation, and we later, after it closed, started collecting an archive and running a project sharing its history. And we've gone on to do various other things. Um, I'm going to talk today, I'm going to give you some examples of how we co-produce archives and then how we share co-produce the sharing of archives from two different projects. I'm going to speak a little bit more about the Speaker's Corner project, and I'm going to speak a little bit about this project in the bottom left which is part of some work on the history of childcare we've done. And um, here you can see people who were involved in a parent-run cooperative nursery in Walthamstow at the launch event for that exhibition. Um, On the bottom right, you can see a project we hosted called Fighting Suss, which was a youth project that explored the history of the Suss Laws. So when I say that our projects are run from the outset in collaboration with the people concerned, That could be one or two or even three years before we actually get funding to run the project. It's how the idea comes to us is often from the people who are maybe involved in a particular organisation or have a particular interest in a theme, and we take it from there. So whether that's going down to Speaker's Corner on a Sunday to find people who've been there for decades to talk to about recording the history of Speaker's Corner, or the case of a centerprise project it was people who'd worked at centerprise coming to us saying it's recently closed how about we do a project looking at its history and we develop the project idea directly with those people from the outset but we also try to think about how our work can influence things in the present so another project we did was um, arming all sides and that was looking at the history of the arms trade during the first world war and that came out with a partnership with Campaign Against the Arms Trade, who thought that during the 100-year anniversary, the centenary of the First World War, it would be great to be talking specifically about the arms trade. And they're actually still using that website quite a lot now in their current-day campaigning work, and it's it's still interesting, I think, for quite a lot of people and researchers to be able to look at things to do with the arms trade during the First World War. So we make partnerships with, with people today um, whether that's like the young people involved in fighting SUS who were concerned about stop and search today who then researched for the SUS laws in the 1970s and learnt about policing in the 1970s and could relate that to their own experiences or more sort of formal organisations like Campaign Against the Arms Trade or in the case of a childcare project, um, New Economics Foundation who've been doing some work on parent-led childcare today and who collaborated with us in some of our events. So, once the projects are actually running, we have steering groups but we also just do a lot of listening and a lot of talking to people from the beginning and throughout, and that's that's probably fairly obvious. We carry on doing that when we come to share what we collect, so we check with the people that we're quoting in exhibitions, audio walks, books, that they're happy with their quotes. We also give quite a large number of people involved in the project, as many as possible, a chance to feed back on the whole thing. And we produce the actual outputs through collaborative workshops from the beginning as well. So volunteers and participants will be helping to choose the themes that we're going to sort the material by. Um, They'll be really getting hands on with the actual archives we've collected and shaping what we produce. And I'll talk a little bit more about how that can be challenging when you come to to create a collective story with the input of lots of individual voices first i want to talk about the archiving stage so all of these pictures are from various projects in bishopsgate institute here on the top left we've got people who've gone to speaker's corner for an awfully long time looking together at photographs and things that they've collected. And we catalogued the Speaker's Corner archive with the input of these people who had spent a long time enjoying the various personalities and people at Speaker's Corner. <coughs> the other photographs are from um, of people who were par- parents and workers at the First Neighbourhood Cooperative Nursery doing a similar job with their archive and looking at the diary of one of the staff members from the time to try and work out when things happened and and, and date her archive. Here's a quote from one of the former publishing workers at Centerprise. when we were starting the project at our first event. She said, all of us are now the beachcombers, the treasure hunters, picking up the fragments, however small, to piece together the cargo that was Centerprise. So this is one of the items that's now in the Speaker's Corner archive at Bishopsgate Institute. It was donated by someone called Christopher Kennett, who as a young man went to Speaker's Corner and took photographs and made audio recordings. And he used to cycle from Harrow as a teenager, and he just, it blew his mind, all the eccentric characters that he could observe then. He really loved the crowd. Um, So he gave us a really nice insight into the actual crowd characters, not necessarily the famous speakers, this is a description that he wrote himself, some of which made its way into the archive description of this photograph. Um, I don't know how much of it you can read, but he's basically explaining that the person with a sign, which the whole you often see in photographs, for end is at hand, was someone called Holy Bob, who would sing these sort of, you can see everyone in the photograph seems to be having a great time singing um, rambunctious hymns, and he had a little following. Um, of women who, who who would help him so so we get a lot of nice detail from people um when we get them into the archive and get them telling us um about the items they're giving us but i wanted to raise this photograph as what as, as to show sort of one of the challenges of getting people to co-produce the actual archive cataloguing with us we think this person is victor matthews who was one of the mainstays of a platform called the Coloured Workers' Welfare Association, which was a very important platform at Speaker's Corner with people who come from the Caribbean and um, t- uh, speaking about their experiences and about politics. And Madonna remembered him as this eccentric character, and he's actually written about under a different name in this quite well-known book about Speaker's Corner as well. He's mentioned in there, but and the way he characterised it to him was as this sort of funny character who would shout, Silence in court, order, order in the gallery at his crowd. So, but that, that was obviously just not the whole story about this person. So um we also interviewed someone called Roy Saw who spoke on this platform and was very interesting in his own right. And so we added um I added a quote from his interview into the archive catalogue to better contextualise who this who this person was and the contributions that he'd made. So, so I was, what I wanted to say about that was that. There's a lot of benefits to involving people and getting their opinion, even if they're the one who took the photograph. But it's not the whole story, and obviously, it's there's advantages to reaching out to other sources and contextualising what you've got in the archive. And but yeah, you have to be careful, obviously. So this is the exhibition we produced um, for doing it ourselves, which was a project about the first neighbourhood cooperative nursery, and. A lot of peop- different people contributed to this exhibition, um, sixth form photography students, people who'd worked at the nursery, who'd taken their children there, and volunteers who were just interested in taking part. And they all, in different ways, contributed to how the, um, what the actual exhibition contained, and, and, and how it looked, and how it was eventually designed. And it was presented in a community centre called The Mill in, in Walthamstow, which is an amazing place that's used by a lot of people all the time it has an open playroom so a lot of parents and kids go there all the time so it's perfect for us in terms of reaching people but we definitely one of the challenges of representing cooperative organization is that the people that make up the cooperatives we're talking about all have different ideas they may not definitely do not always get on with each other but from our perspective we want to share these stories in a way that's useful to people today, to inspire them, but also not to gloss over the truth of what, what, um, what it was like and the challenges they faced at the time. Um, but that can also be difficult when you're talking, trying to involve people in representing work that they've done that's very important to them. So one of the things we, I wanted to represent in this exhibition was the relationships between staff and parents. And this is the text we ended up putting in the exhibition to explain this issue, so relationships could at times become fraught or difficult, as it says, and we needed to find a way to represent that in a way that the people who were actually present in those arguments were happy with. And I think we did in the end, and this is the visitor book from the exhibition, so someone who actually works in the mill where it was hosted says, I so enjoyed seeing this exhibition every day I'm at work. It's such a well-told story and a great way to share your archive. It's a challenge to work cooperatively, and you did not shy away from sharing these challenges. Yeah. Um, hopefully, it's worth doing. It's not always easy, but it just involves lots of lots of conversations. Yeah. Okay.
0: Great. Another brilliant presentation. So finally, we have uh, Dr. Mike. Ebs- uh, senior lecturer in history at the University of Portsmouth uh, and Karen uh, Baker, uh, librarian at the National Railway Museum.
3: And um, thank you very much um, for inviting us to speak to you today. This presentation is a double header. It's collaboration in, in action. So we'll see how it pans out in reality. And maybe there'll be some takeaways after this presentation. Um, so yes, yeah, so I'm Karen.
4: Hi, and I'm Mike. Um, our third uh, project lead, Helen Ford from the Modern Records Centre, uh, sends best wishes but couldn't be here today. Um, we are going to be thinking particularly around the questions about water co-production, uh, questions of effectiveness, success, uh, which necessarily involves thinking about barriers to success as well. So very much pick up on the themes that we've already heard a lot about so far today. Um, in terms of the project, a brief bit of introduction uh, I think is useful on this one. Working on the railways in Britain and Ireland in the 19th and 20th centuries was incredibly dangerous. So, uh, to give one quick stat, 1913 alone, uh, over 29,000 deaths or injuries a single year. That's left a huge documentary record, which is quite important, full of useful detail, potentially of use to a variety of audiences, but it is virtually unknown. It's quite difficult to use, it's unindexed, um, and so on. So there's all sorts of problems in terms of access there. The project emerged then uh, with the intent to kind of collate these sources, bring them together to facilitate research for all sorts of different groups, initially starting as a collaboration between uh, the University of Portsmouth and the National Railway Museum, uh, then joined by the Modern Record Centre at the University of Warwick, and now with the support of the National Archives here which is wonderful. Um, so far we produced a database of around 6,500 uh, accidents to staff, uh, with around 70,000 more to come as we go on.
3: Yes, so, um, so that some of the major outputs um, are about creating new understandings uh, of the subject, of the, of the subject of railways and accidents in particular, and new outputs as a result. Um, one of the speakers earlier, I, sorry I forget which one, um, mentioned about getting something out of the project. Very much on representing the, the Railway Museum, we wanted to get more out of um, understanding our records on, on accidents. Um, we have a lot of users come to our library and archive who have family members affected by um, accidents. It was a, a major employer, a lot of accidents happened, it wasn't this health and safety environment That we know today. Um, And we were often um, directing our users to um, our nicely bound red volumes with no index. and and saying good luck and let us know if you're successful, knowing full well the chances are they would not be. So um, this was very much a self interested from from my perspective, um, being involved with this project, because any kind of um, output that would make access to this information um, useful and usable um, was going to be a good thing. So my next point: expanding audiences and engaging audience. Um, what I mean by that is um, we have a large number of family historians that come to use us, but because we're not uh, national archives and we don't have the, the the administrative employee records at the railway museum, so we need to make the most of what we do have. Um, and as I say, we have the re- the accident reports and other archival material with which to, to do that. Um, so engaging these these family historians, but also other, uh, other audiences that were identified as well. Um, and it was identified that a key audience growth for us was this family history um, community, so it, it, was, it was bang on with what we wanted to achieve. Um, We also have a very dynamic and important volunteer um, community as part of the Railway Museum. We have about 300 physical volunteers on site doing a whole host of of activities. But what we wanted to explore and to develop was um, a volunteer um, project that worked from home. So engaging um, our our volunteer community that was potentially international because our physical um, volunteers were very much... um, restricted by geographical location to York. Um, so this was a way of freeing up access, really, to, to, for getting more and more collaborations from, from a g- wider geographical area. So, um, to answer one of the, the core um, questions then, for us, we've been umming and ahhing about what co-production actually is, um, and we still are feeling our way towards a definition. For now, our working definition is, is all about space space enough for all participants to get something of value from the uh, from the from the engagement so our co-producers at the moment are, are our volunteers um, we have one amazing volunteer uh, craig who's physically on site but he is the only volunteer on site everybody else is is dispersed around uh, the country and in some cases the world and our, our aspiration is to maybe give them the space to become co-producers at some point
4: yeah, th- this is this is a key thing. They we are collaborative at the moment. Are we co-producing? Ooh, not sure about that, and be open about that, of course. Um, we have sought to engage with the volunteers to see what they want out of it, get out of it. So, with the project teams based at the National Archives and at the Modern Record Centre, there we have held in person. Uh, co-production sessions before in certain, some cases before they start with the project uh, as they've been joining as we're going along otherwise they've been going on so again to try and get into grips with this idea about what they want what we want how it could work together uh, to everyone's best interests but yeah we're not there yet how do we learn from each other how do we co-form questions and uh, different directions for what everybody is involved in doing these are very open questions for us. Uh, so, yeah, you know, the key thing there is is that's the point at which we're getting people involved. And, again, we've heard about this. Ideally, if it were true co-production, we'd be involving people at the very early stages, the planning stages, so everybody would be in that room together thinking about how this is going to work, what's this might, the directions and so on. For various reasons, we weren't able to do that at the outset of the project, but we have tried to do that subsequently uh, and where we brought new partners in as well. So... Uh, there, that's, that's quite important, these co-production sessions with the volunteers as well. that have been really very, very useful for us.
3: Yeah, I think i bringing up um, something which has been touched on earlier as well about what is possible um, from your institution that, that you're working on. And one of the, the, the key things that, that I've, I've found is making sure that the project is very much aligned with what the parent organisation is hoping to achieve. The obvious benefit for that is that you will get institutional buy-in. It will perhaps free up staff time to spend on the project, which is obviously key. We haven't received budgetary benefit, but at some point you never know. Um, So it is really, really important at the the planning stages to to advocate why this project is important and and to get your organisation to uh, understand it and to, to buy into it. Also, to recognise stakeholder value. Um, I mentioned earlier that family historians were a major stakeholder for us, but, but Mike's taken this further and has, has pursued current railway industry. The current railway industry are, are getting takeaways from this as well. Um, there's obviously um, a lot of museums, archives and academics benefit from, uh, from, from this project as well. And the key point is that uh, they all have different needs. So you can't do a, a one broad brush approach. You do need to actually understand who those stakeholders, those audiences are or could be, and uh, kind of go in um, at, a, at a more strategic, try to understand what b- what makes them tick level.
4: Right, uh, Whizzing through this now because we've had the nod that we do not have much time left. Um, so the key thing, is it used? Is this material that we're producing, being used by the contributors, by the wider public audiences, stakeholders. And yes, there are various measures by which we can see it is being used and it has been useful. So again, that that feedback here on that is important. Uh, That's all I'm going to say on that one.
3: Yes, it's, it's about uh, how they are involving themselves as well. So um, uh, Mike's got a Twitter stream. He uh, regularly asks for guest blogs. And um, we are thinking as well of, of future collaborations as well, where they might fall in, in, in various capacities, both research-wise and, and other partners as well. Yes, yeah, so that's just to say that yeah, we're keeping our eye um, and ears to the ground with, with future possibilities there. So pitfalls, how do you avoid them? A really good starting place is to think about the time factor, the the point that was made earlier about planning. This helps to avoid the exploit bit, um, so you can actually communicate to your volunteers or whoever is is contributing what is going to be expected of them. Um, Transparency and and being clear and communicating in an effective um, and appropriate means. And, and resource mentioned before about institutional buy-in um, and, um, and personal advocates as well. Um, having people who understand the project and can, can advocate and make the case for um, higher prominence within your organisation, etc., is really key.
4: Uh, I would just add to that, it's not only at an institutional level, the, the personal advocates, the individual advocates, much more broadly, have been one of the things that's really made this work for everyone involved. That we've seen
3: conclusion then for us c- the conclusion is really um, what, what i mentioned before about giving space to everybody who's um, contributing to, to the, the project um, and their continued um, participation in the project is kind of um, one of the, the markers really of on how well you are doing for some um it's not simply about access to uh records um, and finding out a bit more. For some, it's about sharing research. Some people are, are happy to do simple transcribing and others want to have a more directional or, or um, research role. And, and that's absolutely fine and, and we're wanting to encourage it. Um, so, so the point um, is that not all will want it. And I suppose that the project for us is we have to be able to give space to, to everybody. Um, whether or not they, they want it or not is, 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 is OK by us. Thank you. This talk is
4: copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.
3: It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.